This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. And we are now offering Category 1 CME through MyCares and Michigan State University. The links to the CME are in the show notes below. This week, we're going to be discussing an article comparing inpatient treatment or medication with no treatment at all for opioid use disorder. How are you doing today, Sonia? Doing really well, John. How are you doing? Good. Um, I always get really excited this time of year. So I'm like a winter sports kind of guy. And so ski season has hit in uh, South Central Pennsylvania. And I've really been enjoying uh, the change in weather and a little bit of snow for once. I will admit, I saw on Facebook that you were skiing today, even though it's a work day. (laughs) (laughs) It's an administrative day, but yeah, sure. Busted. (laughs) What's going on with you otherwise? Well, I wanted to share with our listeners a perspective article I read in the New England Journal of Medicine called Broken Both Ways. It was a pretty short essay. You know, if you want to read a nice essay in the New England Journal, it was easier than some of the heavier articles they publish. And it was about bias against treating injection drug users with endocarditis. So the author of the article, Dr. Samuel Slavin, mostly talks about a single patient of his with endocarditis and how she is not offered valve replacement surgery because she continues to use intravenous drugs. You know, the patient survives without the valve replacement, but continues to have chronic heart problems. And mostly he asks us to look past our biases and see her as a unique person and not just as a sort of statistic IV drug user. So it really got me thinking about our care for patients who use IV drugs And honestly, the withholding of care unnecessarily if they're not 100% abstinent from drugs or quote-unquote clean. And heart valve replacement, you know, withholding heart valve replacement is the most obvious example. Um, It's been medical practice to refuse to replace an infective valve in someone who uses IV drugs. And the thought is that the valve will get reinfected, repeat surgery will be more challenging, the patient might die from prosthetic valve endocarditis, even harder to treat than native valve endocarditis, or might die from overdose. And so why do the surgery in the first place if the patient is just going to have a bad outcome in the end? So that's, I think, not totally unreasonable, but it made me think of all the other care we provide to people who are very high risk and likely not to survive much longer beyond the care that we provide them. You know, I think about, you would talk about salvage chemotherapy or chemotherapy, fourth line chemotherapy for patients who are have metastatic cancer or ICU care for very elderly patients who aren't DNR, so they get top-of-the-line ICU care, even though they're probably going to die within the next six months. So, you know, I just feel that we provide expensive and probably futile care often, and we shouldn't hold our IV drug patients to sort of a different standard than everybody else. So what do you think, John? What do you think about operating on patients who use IV drugs, even if they might have a bad outcome? Yeah, certainly, at least on the surface, this doesn't kind of rub me right. I think that people deserve care. And I think that there is a little bit of stigma, as we know, with people with addiction history. You know, after we kind of initially talked about this, I do wonder if like we have a CT surgeon listening, if that this was a data-driven decision. Is there any kind of like true trials on this that show that maybe harm outweighs benefit? But you're right. I think that just the possibility of a poor outcome, there's not many other diseases that we do that for, if that truly is the only reason. Yeah. And I think actually the article that I mentioned had a lot of, you know, they had some background information on endocarditis treatment in patients who are using IV drugs. And the rates of death at 30 and 90 days were not different from the general population, although this is a very high risk population. So they did have higher mortality overall in time than 
patients who don't use IV drugs. So it's not that it's risk-free, but there's just all kinds of places where we provide care to people who are going to die in a few months anyway. And we know they're going to die. Unlike our IV drug users, we hope that they won't and most likely they won't, although the risk is high. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But I think really as a medical community, we've moved away a little bit of withholding care because patients are still using drugs. You know, we now treat hepatitis C in patients who continue to drink and use IV drugs. We don't wait for them to sort of get clean before they will address their liver disease. So that's one example where the tide, I think, is changing. It's an interesting idea, yeah. What about you? What are you thinking about in addiction news this week? So I think I've kind of like updated a couple times about this. This was from Axios. Um, and it's called Biden Upcoming Decision on Menthol Ban Pits Politics Against Public Health. And I think it's it's interesting. I've been talking about this now for like a year, and I've been really kind of excited about the idea of a menthol ban. There's a lot of data behind that it's basically easier to start smoking with menthol cigarettes. It's harder to quit. In 2009, Congress gave the FDA basically regulatory capability over tobacco products of what can and cannot be in them. And they actually banned at that time all flavors for tobacco with the exception of menthol. So they basically left menthol as a standalone. Since 2022, they've been actively debating a final push to kind of eliminate menthol-containing products in terms of tobacco use. And it's been sitting like now kind of on like the Biden uh, administration's desk for like at least since the summer. And I thought it was somewhat interesting because it sounds like it's kind of like hit a wall and it's really more of a political reason than really a health conscious reason. So um, menthol is one third of all tobacco containing products. 80% of people that smoke uh, menthol cigarettes are African-American as opposed to 34% of white uh, smokers smoke menthol cigarettes. So it kind of disproportionately affects black Americans. And because of that, it basically has preferentially kind of negative health outcomes for that population. So you think of it like social disparities of health. This is one of the things that's contributing to poor outcomes in our country for our black patients and black members of our community. And Biden, actually, they're saying that a lot of this hesitancy is that it's election year coming up, that he kind of depends heavily on that community for support. And even the Black Caucus in Congress is kind of somewhat divided, not supporting this, which is interesting because it kind of disproportionately killing the people that support that. Other kind of classically uh, Black supporting uh, political groups, the NAACP is actually for the ban. The ACLU is against it. But basically, it's kind of mixed and not even supported by the activist groups that typically are kind of representing this group. So I don't know. I just think that was kind of sad that we're kind of basing votes off of the fact. And I think there's some counterpoints that kind of potentially could open up this black market of menthol cigarettes, which would further put black Americans against the law enforcement community. Um, but that seems like a third degree reach to me a little bit. Well, right. You know, and the solution to that would be to not criminalize, you know, individuals who might have unofficial or illegal menthol tobacco. It is interesting. I mean, I it gets to the very heart of I actually think autonomy. You know, I don't feel like the decision to smoke cigarettes is necessarily one of freedom because they're so addictive and it's very hard to smoke just for fun. Unlike with alcohol, lots of people can enjoy alcohol without having alcohol use disorder or without losing control. But I don't think the same is true for cigarettes. Like, I don't think there's a big percentage of smokers who just smoke for the fun of it and it's totally a free will thing. So I think questions of individual choice become kind of moot when you're dealing with a product that's addictive. I mean, I don't know. I'd be a fan of banning all tobacco. You know, I just can't think of anything good about it. I just think it's interesting that like the, you know, it's kind of in a group's best interest and they're kind of 
worried about support from the group. That's kind of it's actively hurting it, hurting it like a disproportionate amount of time. And I guess it comes back to this idea of what is the role of government in protecting the citizens? Is it this kind of laissez-faire market where you can do whatever you want? And I mean, and there's some countries that take that stance, like even kind of legalized drug use. Uh, I think uh, Amsterdam's one that at least I believe that it's legalized in and kind of somewhat supported in a safe way as best as possible. But people are allowed to make that choice. Or do we have to kind of regulate people's health choices to down to the letter of the law like this. All right. Next episode, you'll have to find some articles on like regulating soda. That's out there though too. The big gulps. Sure is. How big can the big gulp really be? <laughs> we'll have to go to uh, Turkey Hill and ask about it. It is interesting. I'll be interested to see what happens. You know, I, I go back and forth as well because, you know, you and I have talked about how it, you don't get very far in life if you judge other people for their choices. You know, we're just here to help people. But should we kind of force people to make choices that are in their best interest, even if they don't want to? Yes and no. I mean, I think with tobacco, a lot of my patients actually would like to quit. And if something happened to make it so they had to quit smoking, they actually would be pretty happy. They don't want to quit, but if suddenly they couldn't get cigarettes anymore, I think a lot of them would be pretty happy about that. But this also isn't tobacco, right? I think that like cigarettes are not tobacco. I think the idea... That's why no one smokes American spirit cigarettes because that's just tobacco, right? No right. one no one likes that that I've ever heard said that that's a great product, right? What they're really kind of hooked on is these chemicals and additives that kind of make it difficult for people to quit. And kind of the menthol product is part of that, right? It it does have statistical changes where people have a greater likelihood of smoking when they're not prone to in other settings. They it's harder to quit, easier to pick up. It's it's just targeting more smokers. Right. No, I agree. I think it should go. So let's hear about your article tonight. I'm kind of excited about this one. All right. This is a great article. It's titled Receipt of Opioid Use Disorder Treatments Prior to Fatal Overdoses and Comparison to No Treatment in Connecticut in 2016-2017. It was published in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence just recently. So a little bit of background. Opioid overdose death is a significant problem, as we know, and it's only gotten worse basically every year. There are several treatment options for opioid use disorder, including medication, which is like buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone, and also psychosocial treatments. And by that, I mean things like short-term inpatient, which we would call detox, or long-term inpatient, which people call rehab, outpatient groups, counseling, mutual support, therapy, things like that. So the evidence for methadone and buprenorphine is very well established. And those medications are considered the standard of care and the first-line treatment for opioid use disorder in the U.S. and worldwide. We have over 30 years of robust data showing reduction in morbidity and mortality from opioid use disorder with these medicines. Um, it's effective in clinical trials. They're effective in real-world pragmatic studies. So there's just a ton of evidence for medication for treating opioid use disorder. There's a lot less evidence for non-medication treatment. We have close to 150 years of data starting at the American Civil War showing that treatment for opioid use disorder is not effective. For any single episode of treatment without medication, so a stint in rehab, time in detox, a course of therapy, the rate of relapse is about 90% in most situations. And that's consistently been true for um, since about, you know, 1870. So just as an aside, you know, our listeners might know I live in Gettysburg, which is big on the Civil War. I have a collection of uh, Civil War era morphine bottles that I got at one of our antique stores. And I read a fun article in Vice about morphine epidemic among Civil War soldiers after the Civil War. 
article shows how desperate people were for help for their morphine addiction. And at that time, opioids were available over the counter. So you could purchase it the way you could purchase alcohol. And this article is very interesting. It describes the many ineffective and downright cruel, actually, treatments that were tried for people. There was definitely a lot of stigma against these soldiers. Um, Thousands and thousands died from opioid overdose after surviving the Civil War. So there's some interesting history there. But at that time, they did not have buprenorphine or methadone. And some doctors did treat patients with opioids themselves. And they had these patent medicines that were sold as a cure for your morphine addiction, but those medicines also were just opiates. So maybe that was like an early medication for opiate use disorder treatment. I'll put the link to that article, that historic article in the show notes. But anyway, in this paper, this paper aims to provide modern data comparing the risk of death after treatment with medication to treatment without medication. So how effective compared to medicine are these non-medication treatments like therapy? Well, not therapy, they didn't look at that, but detox, rehab, And this paper was written to inform state-level policy decisions in Connecticut. It was started in 2016 when the governor of Connecticut convened an expert panel to determine the evidence-based strategies to reduce the impact of opiates. And this data was collected as part of that initiative. So clinical question. The population in this study was people with opioid use disorder and people who died of an opioid-related cause in the years 2016-2017 in the state of Connecticut. So in that time, there were 965 people who died of an opiate overdose during that study. In terms of demographics, about 25% were female, 91% were white, 50% used heroin, 70% used fentanyl, 10% methadone. And then also there was a lot of polydrug use. So 35% were using cocaine, 36% using benzodiazepines. And they estimated overall that during that time, there were 103,455 people with opioid use disorder in this state. Of those, 72,500 did not receive any kind of treatment. They used a bunch of data sources to make these estimates because one of the problems we run into, John, when we're looking at research regarding opiate use disorder is we don't have a denominator. We never know how many people actually have opioid use disorder in the society. And so this article really tried hard using many different data sources to estimate how many people actually had opioid use disorder, how many people got treatment, and how many people died. So I really applaud them for that effort. The event that they looked at was exposure to the different treatments for opiate use disorder. And if a patient had used multiple treatments, they looked at the last one prior to the patient's death if the patient died. So the non-medication treatments were ones that were tracked by the state and they were all inpatient. So inpatient stays short-term and long-term. They looked at buprenorphine through pharmacy dispensing records and methadone through the State Department of Mental Health. They did not look at naltrexone or any other non-medication treatment like groups or therapy or IOP. They compared it to no treatment at all. So as I said before, 72,000 of the 103,000 people with opiate use disorder got no treatment at all. So they compared the people who got these treatments to people who got no treatment. And the outcome was fatal opioid poisoning and what treatments people received in the six months prior to their death. So to summarize the question again, For people with opiate use disorder who died in the state of Connecticut, what treatment did they receive prior to death? And is there a connection between which treatment they got and the risk of death and comparing it to not getting any treatment at all? That's the question. So John, what do you think of this clinical question? I think it's interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, we often kind of think of these two as kind of running parallel to one another. 
I, I do have one question for you, though. So, you know, basically we're looking at uh, non-medication, medication options. Did they also kind of tease out like people that had like a, a combination of the two or went from a treatment stay to a medication? Like, because that is not an uncommon scenario as well. Yeah. So they didn't count. Like if you went in treatment and got medication only while you were in treatment, but did not get it once you left, that was not counted as medication. Okay. So they only tracked medication in the outpatient. Um, and some people got multiple treatment types and they counted the most recent one before they died if they got several. And if you did like a 30-day program and were released on medication, you were just counted as medication, not program at all, right? Yes. Okay. It's a good point because sometimes patient use, patients use these inpatient stays to get started on medication. Although I think in 2016, 2017, that was probably less common. Okay. So is it valid? That's our next question. This article has many strengths. The first is they were very clear about their data sources and they made what I think is a good estimate of the overall rates of opioid disorder and treatment exposure. The data was real world. The outcome, which was death, was very clinically relevant. The causation was plausible when you're trying to figure out could these different treatments be related to death. I thought that was reasonable. Six months was a long enough follow-up time, although I honestly would have liked to see more, but six months I think was okay. And it was funded by the FDA, NIDA, and the CDC, which was unlikely to cause bias. There were some weaknesses. First is that you did just have to estimate these numbers. So, you know, people who, number of people who had opioid use disorder and number of people who got treatments, that is an estimate. There's not a hard and fast number for that. They also weren't able to include non-residential, non-medication treatments. So that's mutual support groups like NA, counseling, therapy, intensive outpatient programs. Those were not included in the study because they weren't tracked on a state level. So we don't have any data on whether those programs would be effective in this study. They didn't include naltrexone, which is an approved treatment for opioid use disorder, although one that's not used a lot. They didn't include treatments out of state. The other thing is that the drug supply has changed since this study was done. So the majority of patients who died of opioid overdose in this study were exposed to fentanyl. About 50% also had heroin in their system. And people who did not die, those who survived, may not have been exposed to fentanyl at as high rates as now. Now our drug supply is almost entirely fentanyl. And so the risk of death is a little different. So now we might come up with different numbers if we did the same study. The final limitation, which I think is the most important, though, is that there's significant confounding, different exposures to different types of treatments. Different patients self-select into these different treatments. The same person who, this person who chooses buprenorphine is not going to be the same person who chooses a 30-day inpatient rehab stay. Because of the treatment burden, we often see patients turning to inpatient treatment or methadone kind of more as a last resort when they're really ill whereas they might turn to buprenorphine first because there's less of a barrier. You can get it more easily. So someone who's not quite as sick might choose buprenorphine as an initial try at treatment. So I think that is a big limitation of this study. It's not a randomized controlled trial where the two groups are similar at baseline. So what do you think? Do you think this was a valid study? Yeah, I think that I was actually kind of surprised at how much kind of data they collected for this. It's often hard to compare, especially kind of like having both the treatment inpatient stays also having the outpatient prescription symptoms like dispensing the history from the pharmacy plus the methadone clinic data, which often is kind of missing from a lot of these things. So it's a pretty robust database in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I think they did an amazing job trying to come up with the actual number of patients who had opioid use disorder and then what treatment people got. 
because we do not see that data in a lot of other studies. So the results. I'm just going to summarize the clinical question again. So in patients with a fatal overdose involving opioids, what is the incidence rate and relative risk of exposure of different treatments for opioid use disorder? There are a few results that were not the primary outcome, which I think were interesting. So I do journal club with our residents. And one question I always ask them is, what can you learn from this paper other than the primary result? So this paper contained a ton of information about people who died from opioid overdose that I hadn't seen elsewhere. So an example is that 53% of people who die died at home. 17% were incarcerated within one year of their death, which to me is especially sad because it means we missed an opportunity to help them and to get them treatment while they were incarcerated. And, you know, death immediately after incarceration is just a huge miss from the medical community's perspective. The study also really brought home to me the extent of polysubstance use, at least in this population. At death, 35% had cocaine in their system, 36% had a benzodiazepine, and 33% had alcohol. So a large number of polysubstance use in these people. So those were just a few things I learned from the study other than the primary result. There was one other thing I did note, which was that of the people who died, only 2.5% had buprenorphine involved, meaning buprenorphine on their you know, postmortem toxicology, which says to me that buprenorphine is not a big contributor to opioid overdose death. And this tracks in many other studies of patients who were actually receiving buprenorphine or who received buprenorphine treatment prior to their death, only about 20% of them have buprenorphine involved in their overdose death. So it really says that patients, the buprenorphine to me is relatively safe and it's not a big component of illicit overdose death. So that's just something else I noted in this study. So the main outcome, let's talk about the primary outcome. We had four different types of treatment and the incidence of death after exposure per thousand people is the following. So for methadone, after methadone treatment, there were about six deaths per thousand people. After buprenorphine, there were 6.5 deaths per thousand people. After no treatment at all, nothing happened, you did no treatment, about 9.8 deaths per thousand. And inpatient treatment of any duration 17.4 deaths per thousand. So almost three times as many deaths in patients who went inpatient than people who got methadone or buprenorphine, and almost twice as many deaths in people who went to inpatient as people who got no treatment at all. They also calculated the relative risks, if you like to hear the numbers that way. So I'll say those results compared to no treatment at all, methadone and buprenorphine was associated with a reduced risk of death. Relative risk was 0.62 for methadone and 0.66 for buprenorphine. Compared to no treatment at all, inpatient treatment of any duration was associated with a much higher risk of death with a relative risk of 1.77. And compared to methadone, inpatient treatment of any duration was associated with a higher risk of death, relative risk 2.87. And the authors say, I'll just quote them, this is an unacceptably high probability for treatments that are purported to benefit patients with opiate use disorder and likely to be paid for by public tax revenues. So you could kind of argue like, oh, it's the patients who go to inpatient are much sicker. They do have a higher risk of death. But if the treatment helped at all, you wouldn't think the risk of death would be so much higher than people who didn't even get any treatment. Because it's not like the sickest patients all go to treatment. Treatment doesn't select for the sickest patients, I don't think. Did they give any data about differentiating the the non-medication uh, options for duration, like the longer duration programs? I know oftentimes we talk about this abstinence time kind of increasing risk of overdose. Um, basically, kind of people return to use and they've lost tolerance. Was there a, a comparison between the two at all? 
you know, they did look at short versus long-term inpatient treatment, and the longer-term inpatient treatment was associated with a slightly higher risk of death than the short-term treatment. And there were some incidences where I think they couldn't determine the exact duration of treatment, um, or a patient had tried to start with a longer program but then left early. But yeah, overall, the, long, the longer treatment was a slightly higher risk of death than the short-term treatment. So basically, I'm just going to summarize. Exposure to short or long-term inpatient treatment provided no protection against fatal opioid po- poisoning. Um, non-medication treatment might have produced worse outcomes than no treatment whatsoever. Conclusion two, medication for opiate use disorder, even if it was not continued, even if the exposure to the medication was short-term, it reduced the risk of opioid-related death. So what do you think of these results? Are you surprised? To be honest, not entirely. I feel like uh, just my own personal bias. I think like earlier in my career, I think I really kind of pushed a lot of these inpatient treatments for people that weren't doing well or that were struggling on one domain or another. And I'll be honest with you, I've I've kind of referred that now to my recovery support specialist as kind of respite care for the addiction medicine doc more so than anything. It doesn't really help these people. So certainly medication is helpful. And I think that for the right person, these longer term treatment programs are very helpful, especially highly motivated individuals are the ones I see in like my practice that benefit the most from it. I think, as you know, from our other studies, we do a lot of our patients that we treat for these conditions are homeless. They have kind of mental health issues. I don't know if they have the same motivation level as as some of these kind of higher functioning people that end up at these longer term treatment facilities that do kind of other success stories, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I have a few patients who've gone to inpatient rehab, not as sort of an emergency, everything is falling apart. I've got to do something to save my own life, but really deliberately. And those patients have done well because they've, they've self-selected into treatment programs they know are going to help them. But my patients who are doing really, really badly and go to inpatient care. Well, everyone is always relieved when they do because at least you feel like they'll be safe for a little while. I don't see them doing well in the long term. And by long term, I don't mean years. I just mean a few weeks after discharge. They're often doing poorly again. So it kind of tracks with what I see. I was surprised that they ended up doing worse after rehab than people who didn't do any treatment at all. But I think honestly, like you said, there's a high risk of overdose for people who are, you know, away from their opioids for a few weeks, their tolerance goes down very quickly. And it's destabilizing going to rehab. You lose your job, you might lose your apartment, you might lose contact with your kids, you might have to give up your pet. Like who can just go away for 30 days where you're not even allowed to use your cell phone? Like what happens to your life when you go there? So it's kind of destabilizing. So I'm not surprised people did worse after a stay in rehab. Yeah, before we get a bunch of emails from all the rehab centers, though, I think it I think it does have a place, right? I think that like the takeaway from this is that um, you know I think medication does have a role, whether you're doing higher level of care in a controlled setting or you're going to treat in your clinic. I think that kind of the incorporation of medication once again shows up here that it has a very protective effect. Well, right, and of course, there's a huge industry for inpatient addiction treatment. Um, a lot of it is paid for by the state and taxpayer dollars. And if that treatment does not work, I mean, imagine how much it costs to put someone in inpatient drug treatment for 30 days and how much outpatient buprenorphine you could get for that same amount of money and how many recovery support specialists and care navigators you could hire for outpatient rather than pay for inpatient care. 
it kind of makes me ask those kinds of questions. The last counter argument I have here that, uh, you know, the way that this was coded with kind of the methadone and the buprenorphine being kind of whatever they received last, I would like to see truly the effect by kind of dividing who was just receiving buprenorphine and methadone and who kind of had like a lead in with a, a short term or longer term treatment and then a medication, because I think that you might see a difference with those two groups too. Yeah, I would agree. And if anyone runs and rehab and they would like to share their data with us, you know, on how their patients have done six months after discharge, I would be super interested to see it. So are these results going to help me in patient care? I think so. So my patients are similar to those in this study. The treatment in the study are ones that I do recommend to people, medication, and I do recommend people go to inpatient sometimes. Um, The outcome is clinically relevant. I'm just going to quote the author again because they had a lot of good things to say. The quote is, population-level efforts to reduce opioid overdose deaths need to focus on expanding access to agonist-based medication for opiate use disorder treatment and are unlikely to succeed if access to non-medication for opiate use disorder treatment is made more available. So in conclusion, basically, I don't think I can really recommend any treatment to my patient that doesn't include medication for opioid use disorder. I continue to support patients in whatever decision they make for their care because I think self-efficacy is really important in addiction treatment. But I will have to counsel them that the only thing that's really been shown to reduce the rate of death is medication. Yeah, and I would argue too that, you know, you talk about that one of the weaknesses that this is kind of like, you know, early or pre-fentanyl era. I think that I think the data would also show that probably if you were to redo this now, kind of medication even has more of a role than it did kind of in the heroin era. I think so, because I think a lot of the inpatient rehabs, there was a bit of a reckoning that treatment might have worked better in the past. And it really was, once fentanyl was introduced into the drug supply, a lot of people who worked at those inpatient facilities were horrified to see their patients be discharged and immediately relapse, overdose, and die. And a lot of them did change their tune on providing medication at that point. So yeah, I think I think if we redid it, you would see even more benefit from medication compared to other stuff. Great article, Sonia. Thanks for presenting that. Thanks for listening. So we got some uh, talk back, and you're going to have to fill me in on this comment too, Sonia, if I'm interpreting this correct. So it was an interesting comment on Spotify regarding episode 35, which was on prior auth and buprenorphine prescribing, which I'm glad people listen to because I, I feel like it put the in-person journal club to sleep. <laughs> Um, the, the listener said, uh, the DA hasn't stopped going after ADD doctors. It's not just stigma against MOUD, so medications for opioid use disorder. It's stigma against controlled substances due to fear. Medication for opioid use disorder docs should work for DA oversight if you want to help. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that listener is just saying that it's not just stigma against patients with opioid use disorder that keeps doctors from prescribing. It's fear from the DEA fear of being accused of being a pill mill, of being shut down, arrested, losing your license, you know, being on the news as having your office raided, that that kind of fear keeps doctors from wanting to prescribe buprenorphine. And they're suggesting that we should also work with the DEA to uh, reduce their influence on, you know, prosecuting and chasing after doctors. That's how I interpreted that comment. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a valid point. I think that once you make something controlled, right, it kind of just throws up some barriers to prescribing, which arguably is probably what they're trying to do with making someone something controlled. But you can even see like these kind of medications that are controlled in some states, but not in others like gabapentin and Lyrica, you know, different prescribing rates just upon the fact that it's a controlled substance. 
And you're right. I think that people feel that there's stigma, like that you're like you're a pill mill if you're prescribing buprenorphine, although I think it's quite the opposite. I think it is the opposite. But I do have to say, as someone who works with a lot of primary care doctors who want to prescribe buprenorphine, the fear of becoming a pill mill or appearing like a pill mill is real. You know, I think that is something doctors think about. And they see these these what they would view as pill mills. And they're like, I don't want to be that. How do I prescribe opiates but not be that guy? that I saw on the news, you know, getting arrested. Sure. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is a conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on social media, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. CME support with My Cares, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.